Blog Talk Radio. Well, good morning. I don't know if it's morning where you are, but it's morning where I am right now when we are posting the show. So I'll go ahead and say that. I hope you've had a fabulous week or are having a fabulous weekend or again, whatever time it happens to be for you. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Before we get going with today's show, let's talk about a couple of announcements. First of all, I have a big event planned for September. It is now currently August 2016, and I know these shows kind of live on forever, so if you're listening in 2017, 2020, this is uh, this happened a while ago, but for right now, it's coming up. It's, it's the near future, so on Friday, September 23rd, I'll be in Toronto. I'm the guest of Speech Associates, and we have a big group Coming that day, we're doing Steps to Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers, which is a fabulous course, if I do say so myself. And we'll also have a section, a pretty big section that I'm adding to that course per their request, specifically on receptive language. So I'm so excited about that. I'll be teaching an even more detailed version of that in 2017 at the Kentucky Speech and Hearing uh, Association. And I'm always excited to present there and be a highlighted speaker because I'm the hometown girl and it always kind of feels good to, to go where people know you. <laughs> and it's the only time I still kind of get super, super, super nervous. So I wanted to go ahead and announce that too for all my Kentucky friends. Um, also, another announcement that I want to make is... Uh, uh, the sale that we're having this weekend is so good. It's $10 off any product. I mean, off any order, but for a single product. If you have just been wanting to get a single therapy manual or a single DVD, or here's what happens. Sometimes people will say, hey, I ordered one or two of your things, and I'm kind of doing it that way. What should I get next? This is a fabulous opportunity if you want to get a super deal on um, just a single product. So that coupon code will be sent out to everyone who's on the email list. And if you've been reluctant to get on my email list because you think I'm going to be bombarded by this lady, not necessarily so. At the beginning, you'll get several emails in a row is how it's kind of set up with with the best of teachmetotalk.com so you'll know what all of our resources are and you'll know about Therapy Tip of the Week. You already know about the podcast but um, or about other other features, other really popular posts that have been most helpful since we started in 2008. So on that email list, so here's the best part about being on there. You get notified of sales. I don't really run a lot of published sale prices on um, the website. We usually do that for a bonus or for, as a convenience to anybody who's on our email list. So if you have not signed up for that, it is really, really easy to do. Go to teachmetotalk.com, scroll down to the, the green banner that's maybe a third of the way down. You'll have to scroll a little bit, but it's a Parent's Guide to Understanding Speech Language Development, which is a free ebook. So if you sign up there, you get the free ebook, which is a great resource if you're a parent it will walk you through understanding exactly 
the hierarchy that I talk about all the time on here on the podcast, and certainly we'll be talking about that on today's show, but it'll walk you through that hierarchy. So a fantastic resource, particularly if you are just starting with a toddler with a language delay and you're still trying to wrap your head around, what does this mean? What can I do at home? You know, if these are all new definitions for you. If you are a therapist, it is a phenomenal resource for you because it's exactly the kind of information that we should be sharing with parents of toddlers and young preschoolers. So sign up for that. You'll be on the email list, and then you'll automatically get notified not only of sales but of new content on the website. Or a lot of times I'll I'll do what I did with the podcast series that we just finished up, that big 16-week show series. I gave kind of a compilation post. So if you missed a show or two or if you really wanted to look at all of those skills, those 11 skills that toddlers must master before words emerge, You've got one list there with, you know, skill number two, here's the show about that. What was, you know, what what was that show about receptive language? You've got a great list there. And, again, that comes via email. So wanted to let you know about that. All right, let's get going with our topic for today. Today is a continuation of a show that we started last week with, and really kind of based on the week before, we're talking about this overall treatment hierarchy that I use for all children with language delays and again this could be a child with a diagnosis like autism it could be a child who's just a late talker here's what happens and here's here's why we need to do this when we don't look at children in a comprehensive way sometimes parents will come in and say he's not talking and automatically as a speech language pathologist that leads us to think okay this is an at least an expressive problem he's not able to tell us what he wants basically he's not able to talk but many 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 times that's not the only problem it's just a problem that the parents have perceived to be the most obvious or the most glaring deficit that their child has but we need a way to look at children so that we are seeing everything that's going on so many times again we'll we'll think of a kid who initially comes to us for speech therapy as just having that expressive piece issue when we we dig a little bit deeper and we see other things that have really caused that issue. And if we're not working on the right problem, we won't see the results that we want to see and certainly not nearly as fast. So when we use this treatment hierarchy, remember I always talk about social skills and then we look at cognitive and receptive language skills, then the expressive piece, and then lastly, intelligibility. So remember why we want to structure our treatment plans this way. And, and structure how we talk about it with parents in this way because it does help us determine our priorities. You can't start at a level that's too high for a child. So it helps us meet us helps us meet a child where he is developmentally at that just right spot when uh, the it's the core, it's the real reason that child is having such difficulty learning how to communicate. It's also a safeguard against spinning our wheels and doing the wrong things for months and months, or hopefully not months, but weeks and weeks, and then thinking, why isn't this therapy working? What's gone wrong here? When we look at a kid in this way and when we approach children in this way, and again, this is regardless of what their diagnosis is, we're not going to miss anything. This kind of hierarchy also keeps us on track (laughs) when we are working with a child or even more importantly, living with a child with a language delay because it helps us stay focused and it helps us, us remember this is what we're working on. And again, this will hold true no matter what activity we're using. So whether we are playing with toys like we discussed in last week's show or today what we're doing is talking about how we incorporate this hierarchy 
into all of the things that all of us do every single day. And therapists call that daily activities or daily routines. So things that all families do, regardless of culture, regardless of you know where you live, regardless of your socioeconomic level, you know whether you're well off or struggling financially, all of us do a lot of the same things. We wake up, we eat, <laughs> we take a bath, we uh, get dressed with toddlers and babies, we change diapers. So these things hold true regardless of, of what your, how fancy <laughs> your surroundings are. So that's why talking about daily routines and how to incorporate language activities into daily routines are so important because it's pretty universal. All of us do these kinds of things. So again, last week we took a couple of toys and we walked through the hierarchy that I mentioned, social, cognitive slash receptive expressive skills and intelligibility today we're doing that with meals with snacks anything surrounding food and activities surrounding food so we're going to talk about how to incorporate this treatment hierarchy with that very common activity uh, all right so let's get going with that now remember the first piece of this treatment hierarchy is what if you were in a live conference of mine I would just expect uh, you know at least 25 people to yell out social skills so again, I hope that you're kind of doing that as you're listening to the show. So social skills, and remember what, what does that look like? When we're talking about a toddler's social skills, what do we mean? Here we're focused on how a child engages with us during this time together, so how he interacts, how he responds, how he initiates, all that stuff that's not even verbal yet, those kinds of skills. So what can we as an adult think about when we are assessing or when we are, even as a parent, just, just kind of casually observing, is this child struggling with social skill development or if, is he not? And again, a, a lot of times with our little late-talking friends, particularly those who go on to be diagnosed with autism, that's a real problem with them. They're not really interacting with us. And so before we can work on helping them learn to talk, we have to back it up to that first place where communication begins to break down and again that very first thing that we look at is how a child interacts and so as an adult and I say this all the time it is so much easier <laughs> to start working with a child by changing what we do or by changing ourselves rather than changing the child and that's our first step is figure out hey what can I do differently here to help this child move along and make some progress. And with social skills, the first thing that we have to be sure that we are doing as adults is really interact and really be present. And oh my goodness, is that a problem right now in our technologically driven world? Distractedness, <laughs> I think, is huge. And it's sometimes a big, big problem with parents that they don't even really recognize. A parent may not even realize that as I'm feeding my child, as I'm, uh, as I'm giving them their uh, breakfast here I'm not even really present I'm I'm checking my phone 15 times I'm scrolling on my iPad to catch up on what happened on Facebook overnight I'm looking at the tweets or it might be you know listening to the news in the background and again I'm not slamming parents as they're doing this because I'm a mom too and boy 
you know, as I talk about these things, you know, my children are grown now, and so I can. But I, it does kind of cause me to pause and think, boy, there were some other things that I could have done differently. And so sometimes, again, that distractedness piece, we may not even realize what a big problem it is. So talking with parents about how to really check in and how to really be present may be an uncomfortable conversation to have, but it's one that we need to mention, especially since this is so prevalent. You know, when our, I think about you know, previous generations did not have the pull for our attention that we do now. You know, my grandmother didn't hear a constant alert signal on a cell phone. <laughs> and I bet if you'll kind of think about that too, think about how many times you've alert to that little beep if you have your, your settings uh, uh, set up like that so that you're constantly hearing something like that, you know, that takes away from what we're doing. And it can certainly distract a parent as, they are tr as they're thinking, hey, I'm going to try to work in some home therapy here. So talk with parents about that if you're a therapist. And if you are a parent, just, just monitor yourself and think, you know, hey, can I really – be unplugged during this time. A lot of times I'll say to parents who, you know, really talk with me about this and who are brave enough <laughs> or candid enough to mention that they are struggling with this, I'll say, you know, how can you afford not to be unplugged, though, at least some of the time with your child? You know, this, this speech therapy thing is a big deal. You're paying a lot of money for this. You're investing a lot of your own time for this. So certainly helping a parent see all of this is going to be much more efficient, meaning it's going to go faster and better if we can figure out how to multiply our efforts here. And so for a lot of times it's just convincing a parent, hey, you know, we need to really prioritize this and take this seriously. And again, we can't do this in a real finger-wagging, accusatory, correcting kind of way with a parent. Um, and, and that is never, ever, ever my intention to do that. I just want parents to be really, really aware of all the benefits that their child can get, particularly when they have a child who's struggling with social skill interaction and engagement with other people and really acting like they're listening to other people and enjoying other people, the, the adult, the parent has to start that first. And they have to really, really make sure that they are being the best communicative or communicative partner that they can be. And that really means being 100% connected and 100% on and present during that time that they're interacting with the child. All right, enough about that. Hopefully you've gotten that point. But let's talk about why working on language during mealtime is so important. It's consistent. And, again, we've already talked about it's universal. All of us do these kinds of things, no matter what, what else is going on in our lives. We also feed our kids several times a day. So it really builds in that frequency of practice, and that's so important. You know, as a speech pathologist, I tell parents all the time, you know, if their appointment time is, you know, on Wednesday afternoons, I'll say, you know, I'm – pretty good at what I do and your child is going to get better from therapy alone but or could get better from therapy alone but 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 and it's a big but the children who make the most progress are the children whose parents really incorporate these strategies and who carry these things over and carry them through day after day after day after day. And so that's a really, really important part to talk about with parents. And I'll mention that a little bit later too because it's something that I really want to be sure that as a speech pathologist or as another kind of therapist that you are able to share with parents without 
inducing a lot of guilt <laughs> or without sounding too um, judgmental or um, not as understanding as we need to be because we know parents are super busy and particularly parents of children who, again, have a an identified diagnosis or what will be a special need for a long time. So we have to be so aware of that too. You know, a parent really can't spend every minute of every day working on these kinds of things, but if we will teach them really specific things that they can tie into routines and do at specific times, it becomes a lot easier to manage what might feel out of control or uncontrolled, what might feel like a parent might feel overwhelmed with I don't know how to do all this therapy stuff that you're asking me to do. But when we break it down and say, okay, let's just talk about today what you can do during mealtime and snack time, and let's just get that going two or three times a day, and that's all we're going to worry about right now. Let's just get that piece in place. And for parents who need that kind of structuring and who need that kind of, you know, build it in a little at a time, this is exactly how you'll do it for those kinds of parents. So let's also talk about this. As the therapist and as you're, you're introducing, hey, these are the things we're going to do during mealtime or snack time, don't just talk about it. As a speech-language pathologist or an OT or a developmental interventionist or an early intervention specialist, whatever you call yourself, you need to show parents how to do this. So you need to model these strategies, not necessarily for the child, which you are, because that's what therapy is, but for the parent so they can see you how to do it. They can see you do it. It's not just about talking about it, all right? You'll ask a parent to try it too. So you'll show them what to do. You'll make some suggestions. You'll have them watch you do the same strategy over and over and over and over. But then you want to help them feel comfortable enough to jump in. Now, why do we want to do that? We want to see what a parent does so that we can help them tweak <laughs> their approach or tweak their strategies. And here, this is kind of this is kind of something that that's true but it's sort of hard to stay, say to a parent and not have them feel like you're in their face about it but if what they were doing already was going to work as a therapist would you even be there they parents have got to learn how to do some new things and include some new strategies and again that's the way that i try to share it i try to soften it as i say it though so that parents again aren't offended and don't feel like I'm being, again, judgmental or that I'm being condescending because that's not the purpose at all. But you do want to say, hey, we, we, can, we can change some of what you already do. Even though you are fabulous, we want to make it even better. And let me show you how we can just make these few little changes. Now, some therapists are so shy about doing this with parents because they feel a little bit uncomfortable or, again, they feel like they don't want to offend a parent or correct a parent or sometimes it's it's not even that it's just that they expect parents to resist maybe they've been a therapist in an early intervention program you know for 10 years and they've gotten a little bit jaded you know they expect parents not to participate but here is the truth if a parent has gone to the trouble of getting therapy services initiated for their child that parent does want things to be better they do want their child to improve. So that desire is there. So from the very beginning, we have to acknowledge that with parents. And we have to say things like, I know you want him to learn how to talk. And I am so glad that you've gotten him in therapy because the research tells us this stuff really works. And so my job 
here, my most important thing that I can offer your family is that I teach you exactly what it is that works so that you can do this over and over and over again with your child, and we really, really multiply our efforts. And I always add things like, you know, and we talked about this before, the kids who make the most progress are the kids whose parents work with them the most. And so it's kind of that little play on words there. You know, and I tell parents, if you expect big results, and again, I kind of have a different caseload <laughs> than I did, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or, you know, five years ago in the last five years with the success of the website, because most of the time, you know, parents are coming to me for that second or third or seventh opinion. And so by the time they get to me, I'm able to just kind of tell it like it is a little bit and say, you know, here's the deal. You've got to really invest some time here. And, and, and the kids who make the most progress are the parents who have done the most work. And so I think that that's a kind of a good way to word it, and I've gotten really good results with, from parents saying it in that way and explaining it in that way. And remember, as a therapist, you can't make a parent do this. We have to talk to them about why consistency is important and, you know, that frequency piece does matter. You can't just do something with a kid once or twice and expect it to stick. You've got to do it over and over and over. And I talk about things like practice and mass practice, meaning that they have to do it a lot before they may see a kid really master a new skill and hold on to that and be able to use a new word or use a new gesture or to understand a new word. And it may take lots and lots and lots of opportunities before that becomes realistic. Now, sometimes parents are reluctant to participate and or sometimes parents just kind of, it's sort of like they'll, they'll say, you know, they'll kind of hand you their kid like they're almost saying, here, fix them. And I get that too. Here, here's the thing. You just have to do everything you can as a therapist to make a parent feel comfortable and to get them to buy in and get them to invest in what you are recommending. They have to trust you. They have to know that you are telling them to the very best of your ability what they can do to make a real difference at home. And so when I have a parent who's reluctant to do things in front of me, let's say that we're you know, in just a minute, we're going to talk about specifics. But let's say that we're t I'm really focused on getting a kid to follow some new directions. And I'm showing them, I'm doing this uh, tell him, show him, help him kind of cueing method. And I've said to a parent, we've, I've shown him how to do it. You know, I've told, shown, and helped a parent do it. But we're kind of at that point where I say, okay, now you try. And a parent's a little bit uncomfortable when I can tell or they balk or they say, oh, I just, I just don't want to. Or they, you know, even non-verbally kind of share that they're resistant with that, I'll just stop and say things like, hey, you know, I know this makes you feel weird or self-conscious or silly doing, you know, this in front of me, and I get that. I would feel a little bit shy about doing this too, but if you want to just keep watching for right now, that's okay, but my very best way to help you will be to see what you're doing because it's so hard to be objective about ourselves and so let me do that for you. Let me help you kind of move this along a little bit. So whenever you are ready, you just jump right in here with us. Whatever you feel comfortable doing, you do it. And then, you know, I'll be able to give you some feedback and things you may never have even noticed before that can make a significant difference in how fast your child makes progress. And parents usually like that and will respond to that approach. Um, you know, sometimes, too, let me just say this one more thing before we get back into our strategies. Some state early intervention programs have really emphasized for um, 
therapist not to be hands-on with the child anymore. And I hate that because I will just tell you, since we, since I started my career back in the 90s, and certainly since we started TeachMeToTalk.com in 2008 and did our published our DVDs, and I've seen, you know, just loads of children, 95% of parents that I've worked with have said, the biggest thing that makes the difference for me is seeing you do the therapy, seeing you do first what you want me to do. And a lot of therapists and even a lot of programs, and there are even some pretty um, big names in early intervention where the therapist will say, I don't do anything with the kid anymore. I just walk in and tell the parent what to do, and then I coach the parent all the way through it. Because they'll say, I don't ever want the parent to think it's me. I want the parent to know that they can do it. And I get that, but if I had not heard so, and I might have felt differently about it, if I had not heard so many parents in my face saying, hey, watching you on that DVD, that's what got me on the right track. Or seeing how he reacted when you did this made me know exactly what to do. So don't fall into that trap of thinking, hey, I'm not going to do as much hands-on therapy. And again, you may, I'm not saying that you're not ever going to not do hands-on therapy. And if you've taken my new course, Is It Autism? Boy, part two of that course I'm working with a family where the little boy just hates me, for lack of a better word, <laughs> and I'm doing everything through the mom. But listen, I'm introducing that strategy. I'm reviewing what it is that we're going to do as she's doing it, and then at the end, we talk about it. So that introduce, do, and review piece, that's critical. So if you need to see some some examples of that real-life coaching, get that course, get especially part two and watch that because it'll show you exactly, you know, how to talk about and how to get a parent or how to coach a parent through doing some some all of these kinds of strategies with the child and then walking through that and then the review part. How, how do you talk about it with a parent after? How do you really tweak what they're doing without them feeling like you are criticizing them? So it's a great, great example of that. But don't, back to my point here, don't be reluctant to show a parent how to do what it is that you want them to do because most of the time that's going to be your most effective way to really get a parent on board. All right, so back to these specific strategies for mealtimes. How can we use that hierarchy that we've spent a lot of time talking about now, social skills, cognitive receptive skills, then expressive, then intelligibility? How can we walk through that framework or walk through that hierarchy with meals? And again, we were talking about social skills and exactly what we wanted to do, how that would look in a mealtime. So it's that interacting piece. Remember that we want to talk with parents and use terms like be connected, be present, which, again, so hard to do in busy households, but we have to help parents know that that's, the, that's where they start. They start by changing how their social interaction is with their child at the beginning. And let me just say, most of the time, you'll, you'll mention this once, and then parents have it. They know exactly what you mean by that. And when a parent struggles with this, you, you know, you kind of know, boy, we have some more work to do here because that's a responsiveness issue, too, that the parent isn't maybe being as aware of all of the opportunities that they have for their child to interact with them and communicate with them. And, again, that's where all of this wonderful um, parent coaching really comes in because that's where you can make a big, big difference right away. You're trying to change that adult <laughs> instead of trying to change that child with a developmental issue. 
So spend some time really looking at that and talking about it. Now, I love working on social skill interaction during snacks or during mealtime because especially if it's a snack, we can dish out that food piece by piece so we have so many opportunities for engaging a child. You wouldn't really set out a whole bowl of goldfish for a child or a whole little you know, plate of crackers or lots and lots of grapes or whatever you're feeding a child and just saying, here, go away, and thinking that you've done your part. You know, he's he said more, he signed more, and you say, oh, speech therapy's done for the day. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's so much that we have to do. And, again, that piece-by-piece piece method where we have an opportunity to really, with every bite, engage that child. And here we're not talking about the signs or the words yet, but let's just look at what kinds of social skills that we would want a child to use. Eye contact. Usually a kid is pretty interested in eating, so it's a great time to work on things like eye contact because the child is motivated to look at you. There's a big reason for him to include you in that activity. It's so that he can get the next bite of cookie or his next sip of juice or whatever it is that you're using there for snack time. Again, it's a great time to work on joint attention. And remember what joint attention is. And if you have paid any kind of attention to the podcast over the last uh, in 2016, over this whole last year, we talked a lot about joint attention. And remember, that means that the, it's, that the child has the ability to shift his attention between something that you're sharing with him, an experience or an object. And in this case, it would be what? It would be the food. So he's, you've got some nice opportunities to see how how is he moving along with joint attention. Is he able to look at that cup and look back at my face and then look at that cup? Or is he just radar focused on that cup? Or once he sees whatever snack, the yogurt and the spoon, does he just forget about you? And so it's a nice opportunity to assess how joint attention is moving along and eye contact. So what are some things you can do? A lot of times as parents and as therapists, you know, we lapse into saying, look at me, look at me, you know, right here. And we just, we think we're just going to do it with verbal directions. But gosh, that is so much, uh, that's easier said than done, right? So many times that doesn't work. So what should you do? Remember, you always change yourself first. So that means you'll try to put yourself in his line of vision. You'll make yourself really fun to listen to, and you'll make your face really fun to look at. So you're giving a child, again, a reason to want to stay in contact with you or to look at you or to listen to you. This is also, with meals, it's a great time socially to work on initiation. Now, what do I mean by initiation? We did a whole show about that a couple of weeks ago. But remember, with a nonverbal kid, we have to pay attention to initiation when not just with words. So what will that kid do to let me know that he wants the next bite or the next drink? And so a lot of times with a parent, we just have to teach them how to wait a kid out a little bit. And again, we're not necessarily waiting for a sign or a word here, but we're waiting to see, will he look at me? Will he try to touch my arm to get me to move that spoon quicker if it's something that I'm uh, spoon feeding him? Will he make a noise? Will he try to say something to me? Will he just kind of yell out a little bit? And remember, that's that's communicative. That's however you want to say that. I always go back and forth between communicative and communicative. What will he do? What will he? How will he let me know? How will he not be passive during this experience? How will he get my attention? So, again, this is the very beginning of all of that. So you might have to teach a parent to kind of 
uh, again, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about how to be connected and how to really read your kids' cues, but sometimes with a parent you have to say, hey, listen, don't get that bite right, next bite right away. Kind of sit back a little bit and see what he'll do. See how he'll let you know. Sometimes parents really haven't paid too much attention to that. And so it, it sometimes it's a good a way to let a parent know, hey, things are improving, things are getting better before you just kind of shoveled the food in there and he liked it or you wrestled the food in his mouth. <laughs> and, you know, there wasn't much indication that he was really connecting with you or interacting with you or engaged with you. But look at him now. He's making eye contact with you. He's He's leaning forward. He's making a little uh, 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 he's making a little sound I haven't really heard him do that before and so you're able to point out some nice progress that a parent might have missed so a great way to kind of again turn it a little bit where you're showing a parent hey there is movement here this child is making some gains when that might not be as a parent to parents so that they can celebrate with you and they can recognize that good things are happening. Mealtimes are also a really fun time, mealtimes and snack times, to develop some little routines, some cute little routines that are even nonverbal. Something like cheers. Do you know what I mean by that? That's where you both clank your glasses together like you're doing a toast. Now, again, if you've never done cheers with the sippy cups, <laughs> boy, you are really missing out. And those of us who have done early intervention for a long time have come up with these kind of fun little games and stuff. You might think about doing cheers. You know, that's a New Year's Eve activity. But, oh, so fun for toddlers. Things like washing the table down afterwards or even washing off their high chair tray, whatever you've done. Something like walking over and putting their sippy cup on the table or in the sink, something that's just a little routine. Now, in the sink for lots of kids that who are toddlers, they can't read it. That's not practical yet. But even something like throwing away the drink box or the napkin or, or the wipe. Let's say you've used a baby wipe to wipe up the table or the, the wherever you've had the snack. Anything that makes more of a routine the child is learning the steps and again this really sort of crosses over from a social kind of skill to a cognitive skill and again remember cognitive is how we think how we remember how we learn that's the cognitive piece and remember it's so closely tied to receptive language and receptive language means how children what how they understand words, how they receive the language that's coming in. So learning a routine or the sequence of a mealtime or snack time routine is really, really important. And remember here, we have to help parents think about what they can consistently do and figure out how they can teach a child to do his part. And that's something that I talk a lot about, that especially um, in the last year or so when I'm talking about receptive language and with cognition, children have to learn to do things for themselves, even children with significant delays. I got an email from a mom yesterday that I've been working with for about a year now directly, and we've taken a little break from therapy because they've moved, and he's starting a new school, and gosh, all kinds of life changes have happened. But she was saying, you know, now I'm I'm really – really trying to do the advice you gave me a long time ago, which was make him do some things for himself. And here I'm not saying, you know, that he's going to go prepare the whole meal. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, she's going to teach her little guy who's four with autism how to do laundry. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I mean, he needs to learn how to use some utensils. He needs to be able to throw some trash away or throw his 
a toddler to throw his diaper away. And again, let's just keep it here with mealtimes as we're talking about that. But learning how to do a part of the routine is empowering for toddlers. You know, a lot of times that learned helplessness is something that we see in older children and in teenagers and even adults with developmental disabilities. And a lot of that isn't that they are not capable of doing more for themselves. It's that no one has had that expectation. And so I really try to talk to parents about that a lot with a toddler and keep it realistic between, you know, with what the child can can practically do. And you'll have to consider, you know, his motor capabilities and all of that. But a lot of times we are not giving toddlers and young preschoolers enough to do so that they really become involved in these daily routines and so that they learn, hey, you know, I'm a participant here. I've got a place of power in this family. I can do things too. I, I, I don't have to just wait for my mom to do every single thing for me. I can wipe my own mouth. I can pull up my own shorts, I, you know, those things. And, again, I shouldn't have brought the shorts analogy or example in with this because we're talking about meals, but let's think about all the things that a toddler can do to do his part during a meal. And so pick out what those are. You know, really watch a family have a meal. And if you're not there, if you can't just work that out during a therapy time, that's okay. A snack will do. Or as a parent, really analyze what you're doing. You know, can, what can my, what part can my child do? Can I give him the bowl and say, go put it on the table. We're about to have a snack. That's a wonderful job for a toddler or a young preschooler to be able to do. And then you sit, you know, and, and again, if this is a snack, if it's not the full meal, do your piece-by-piece piece method where you're giving him one at a time and you're putting it in the bowl and, you know, one of your things before he grabs it, you know, you're you're saying things like, you know, take your goldfish out or, you know, get your cracker out. And again, what are you doing here? You're not only teaching him how to do his part, but you're also working on receptive language. And remember we've said receptive language means how a child understands words. And mealtime is fantastic for teaching really, really important words for a toddler who's having some difficulty learning how to link meaning with specific words. We're also working on beginning to follow simple directions. Give it to me where you're telling a child, you're either holding out your hand, excuse me, or you are, you know, even without that little nonverbal cue where you're asking him, give it to me. That's one of the first requests or directions that even babies before they're a year old begin to follow. We'll usually see that emerge somewhere 10 to 12 months. And in a typically developing child, they understand give it to me really well by their first birthdays. And so that's one of the first commands that we want to teach a child how to do. So if you're a parent and you have a two-year-old, who doesn't understand, give it to me. If when he's holding his empty cup, you should be able to say, oh, give it to me or give your cup to mommy. And he, sh- he should know what that means and be able to do that. If he doesn't, you know, w- get your hand out there so that he can see that you were waiting on him to put something in your open hand. If he still doesn't do it, what should you do? Take your other free hand, place it on the cup and actually put that cup in your hand. And again, if you're a therapist, I hope you know that trick. I hope you learned that in grad school and been doing that forever. But if you haven't, today's a good day. <laughs> that's how you teach a kid how to follow that command. And again, guys, that's that's such an early developmental marker. 
that that's one of the first things we need to be working on with children and teaching parents how to do uh, what how to how to teach their child how to follow that really simple direction because they can practice that over and over and over and over again. So that certainly is a simple direction. And for some kids who are pretty behind, pretty delayed, you may have to work on that for weeks before they get it. But just that that practice, that consistency in practicing with an adult who is waiting on them to, and has a full expectation that they will understand that direction and that they will be consistent in following that direction, will go a long, long way in helping a child learn how to do that. All right, so let's move along here. Let's talk about other kinds of skills with receptive language. Here we're talking about other specific vocabulary. So think about all the important nouns or the names of things that children can learn. Certainly their utensils, so where's your spoon? Give mommy your spoon or uh, hold your spoon up. And again, you've got kind of two concepts there where you're having the child identify what that utensil is and then follow a command with a, a preposition in it or a location word with the word up. Uh, other kinds of things you can do, specific names of whatever food he's eating or whatever he's drinking. So, so many possibilities there for teaching a child to understand language. Other kinds of common actions eat, drink, bite, things like we've already talked about, wash, so washing the table or the tray, wash your mouth, you know, wash your hands. Those are really common and familiar action words that we can always figure out a way to work on during mealtime and snack time. Let's move on with kind of, uh, so that we can get through this entire topic today, let's move on to expressive skills. So meal times are great for that, but remember when we think about expressive skills, we're not necessarily starting with words. So what are some things that we can do to teach a child uh, to kind of move through that learning how to imitate words? We always back it way down to that very first level, and here it would be you learn how to imitate action so how to copy what you do because eventually we want him to copy your words but obviously that's a problem if he's in speech therapy or she's in speech therapy so we have to back up to the very first point where that skill is not present and so for many many children that's imitating action so here what are some actions that we can get a child to imitate during meals or with snack time and we've already talked about things like Hold your spoon up. And how would you do this? You don't really give it as a verbal command, although that's what we were talking about back in the receptive language section. This is a little different. You want to show him what to do and have him copy that. So that means you need a spoon, too, and you need a cup, too, where you are modeling or demonstrating some really simple and hopefully fun and cute little actions for a child to imitate uh, as you are having that meal or having that snack. So it might be tapping the fork on the tray. It might be, or the table. It might be just you patting your hand on the table and saying pat, 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 and seeing if he will copy your action. And again, you may get lucky and he tries to <laughs> say the word there too because those little exclamatory words and those fun little routines like pat, pat, pat have a way of, of capturing a toddler's attention. And you may get that gift of hearing him verbally imitate when your only real outcome there was for him to imitate your action. It might be imitating you stirring with a spoon. And again, it may not be stirring the real food. It just may be, you know, stirring in an empty cup or an empty bowl, but that's a fun one that toddlers like to do. Uh, it could be 
if he'll let you, <laughs> if you have small snacks, something like a Smartie or an M&M or even a goldfish, dropping, a fun little routine that I do with kids here is to drop uh, one of the snacks into the bowl and have it, you know, make a clank and, you know, say something like in or if you want to say, you know, boom or, you know, pow or whatever little word you want to use to um kind of represent the bang, you know, that the sound that the snack is made when it hits the bottom of the empty bowl or cup. So that's kind of a fun little routine there too. But anything that you can do to get him to copy, shaking the cup is kind of a fun thing that I like to do is, you know, grab their their cup with a top on it, so their sippy cup, and say, shake, 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 shake. You know, a kid will like that. You know, and after I've done that with them a time or two, sometimes they'll look at me with really twinkly eyes and grab the cup and, you know, kind of hold it in my face and shake it like, hey, I remember that game. That was so fun. And even though they're not saying shake, 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 you know some great things about their cognitive development. They remembered that little routine. They initiated that routine. And so can you see how all of this kind of comes together, especially as we move through this hierarchy? You can see evidences of a child's progress things that he's done that he's remembered that he's that he thought was cool <laughs> because you initiated that with him and you taught him how to do that so those little fun little things so there's some uh we talked about doing that little game with cheers where both of you have a little cup or a glass and you you know you um toast your your little cups together those are fun you might knock on the cup or on the bowl or on the table and say knock 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 that's another fun little routine that um, you can see if a child will try to imitate that from you. Next, move on up to gestures. So he's imitated some of your actions. Now, what are some gestures that he could imitate that could move toward becoming or helping him learn how to communicate? We've talked about a couple of those. You might teach him how to do gimme fingers. Do you know what I mean by gimme fingers? And I'm saying, like, give me fingers, but I'm saying it the southern way. Give me, G-I-M-M-E, instead of G-I-V-E-M-E. So give me fingers where a kid kind of opens and closes his hand, like saying, I want it, I want it, with that little gesture. That might be something that you can really teach um, during mealtime. It might be like the game Give Me Five is real fun to do. A little social, again, a little social routine that you're doing here. But that's gestural. You know, he's doing something with you that communicates, hey, this is fun. This is something uh, something that we're doing together here. When kids can do some of those early little gestures, you know that they're developmentally ready to sign. Use some simple sign language. So you can certainly move into your early signs that have to do with food. I've talked a lot about on this show about the rationale for still teaching really simple and generic signs that you can, or functional signs you can use for everything like more and please. Some therapists don't like that. If you need a reason to justify in your own mind why you would still continue to do that, go take a look at one of my posts at teachmetotalk.com called In Defense of More. And again, it kind of gives you some reasons for knowing that it is very developmentally appropriate and very sound evidence-based practice to continue to teach signs like more and like please. So go take a look at those. Others, think about the, all the other early signs you can teach here. You can certainly teach the specific sign language for whatever it is that they're eating and drinking. So milk, water, cracker, cookie, whatever it is. Other things like all done or all gone, whatever you use uh, to let something be finished. You can certainly teach that sign there. Uh, so super, super examples of that. 
other things that you can do here is you're kind of walking through that process of teaching a child how to imitate. Mealtimes are a great time to target imitating nonverbal actions with your face and with your mouth. And again, we know that these don't necessarily lead to speech per se, but we want a child to be able to imitate at the easiest, earliest level. So for some kids, that really will mean that we have to separate the sound from the mouth movement. Now, if you're a therapist, that makes perfect sense to you. If you're a parent, that might you might say, why in the world are you even talking about that? That's a little over my head. Or, of course, that would be a step. Just know that that's kind of controversial in the field of speech-language pathology. <laughs> so that's why I'm sort of making this differentiation to therapists and say, hey, for some kids, you really will have to work on these non-speech oral motor movements, but again, think about why you're doing it. It's just to teach them how to imitate, just to teach them how to pay attention to your face, how to look at you, and then how to copy what you do. And it's just a small little step on the way to talking. Thankfully, not every child will need this. <laughs> so it's not something we do with everybody, but for children who really are having a hard time grasping that they have volitional control of their mouths, it's a good little step that we have to put in for some kids. So what are some of the things you could do here? You could teach a kid how to, what, maybe lick something off their lip. So there's some yogurt still on that top little lip. So how do you teach that? Well, you show them how to do it with your own mouth. You put some yogurt on your lip and you say, look, look, get it, get it. And you lick your lip. You show them how to do it. You make a big deal about it. Uh, smacking your lips. Chattering your teeth. I don't know if you can hear this, but clicking your teeth together, puckering your lips, you know, pretending to um, kiss the cup. You, you can just be as silly or as outrageous as you want to be here. The purpose is you want the kid to do what you've done. And, again, not all kids will need this step, but for ones who do, it's a nice little tool to have in your bag of tricks that, you know, hey, mealtime is a great time to work on this because we're already focused on our mouths. Let's move on. Let's talk about a kid who can do all of that, but he's, he's not quite ready to imitate words. You're not really hearing words yet, but what would be an excellent in-between step? What are some fun little play sounds or early, easy vocalizations that he can imitate? How about this one? And dads love this one. When you take a drink and then what do they teach their kids to do? Either burp or exhale, something like that's a fun one to do during meals. And that might be the very first time that you hear a kid try to vocalize after you or imitate something verbally. And so I, I love that, that little trick. It might be just a little slurpy sound that he's pretending to drink. It might be something like or those easy little vocalizations. And again, guys, so many times we get like talkers as a therapist on our caseloads who they're telling us when they first come to us, mom, we'll say to mom, how many words does he have? And she'll say none. But then she leaves out that he does this kind of stuff, these little sound effect things. And so we don't realize how important these are. And that's if a kid is doing a couple of those things or even the next little phase where he's doing some exclamatory words, you know, hey, that's a level where he can be successful. That's where I need to be focusing my efforts right now. And so what you need to do if mom says, well, sometimes I'll hear him do like a little mm-mm or yum-yum or something that sounds like that, you should know automatically, hey, let me give you these three or four other cute little vocalizations, cute little play sounds, sound effects with meals that we can try. And let's see if some of these stick. And what are you doing? You're teaching a child. You're expanding his phonemic repertoire, aren't you? You're giving him new sounds in his sound bank to use. And he may not 
be able to use an M for a word like mama or more or mine yet, but he can say mm, mm, when he's eating. Gosh, that's the beginning. So be sure that you're looking at that kind of thing. Let's talk about that next little phase, and I've already mentioned it. That would be exclamatory words. So where we're saying teaching and modeling words like uh-oh as you drop something during a meal or like ooh or yuck, yuck, yuck which is a fun one for toddlers. So if the kid is refusing to eat something, instead of turning that into a big power struggle, I think, well, I'm just going to teach him how to say yuck. I'm just going to teach him how to say ooh and kind of maybe snarl his nose a little bit. Now, again, a parent may not appreciate that. But you can talk about how communicative it is, and he certainly is letting you know, and it's something better than, you know, dumping the food out or smacking his mother you've given him a verbal way to express hey i don't like that and i don't want it so it's an opportunity in and of itself then after we've heard some play sounds like that and some exclamatory words then we know that a kid is developmentally ready so then we focus on verbal routines getting getting a kid to use some words that are tied specifically to meal times a lot of families will already have some little mealtime routines as they do. If they're a religious family, they may do some praying together, a family prayer before the meal. And I've had lots of little friends that, you know, amen is one of their first words because mom will say a little prayer, you know, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food. Amen. And they do it, you know, as a family every time before they pray. And, you know, that's just a values kind of thing. You may not want to implement that if you're a therapist, but you certainly, when your families you know that that's important to them and that's something that they're doing, that's when I jump in and say, hey, I noticed that you're doing this and I've heard you and or I saw you last time I was here when y'all did a little prayer before the meal, let's talk about, you know, how you end that. Let's talk about what you say that we could turn into a verbal routine. And so a lot of times you're taking what a family already does, and instead of teaching something entirely new, you're just tweaking it a little bit or making one little addition that would um, take what they're already again, doing day in and day out and making it just a little bit better. Other little games that you can play, here that are part of verbal routines I've had a lot of success with teaching families how to if they're if they eat a family meal together especially if they're older siblings and they do pretty routinely have dinner together or you know a Sunday meal teach how to uh, play the where's game so where's mama where's dada where's you know whatever the brother's name is or sister's name or sometimes they'll use little nicknames like Bubby and Sissy learn how to play that and then the child is developmentally ready to talk, they'll start to fill those words in. So you may be able to say things like where's and then wait on that toddler after you've played it over and over and over and over for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks without, you know, with saying mama and dada or, you know, whatever, whoever's there. If you'll pause, they'll start to fill in that word for you. And again, sometimes it's such as much as a surprise to the child as it is to you it just kind of pops out and that's the beauty of verbal routines it could be that you'll introduce some songs that are that a parent uses a lot during mealtime you know when I ran a big playgroup program we sang to the tune of do you know the muffin man do you know what time it is what time it is what time it is do you know what time it is it's snack time and we had so many kids in that little program who <laughs> After hearing that for weeks and weeks and weeks, first they would start to just scream out, 
you know, I for time, it's snack time. Uh, and pretty soon we would start to hear, you know, ta for time in there. And then, you know, nap time, nap time, they would start to say snack time, snack time. And so, again, when you do these strategies over and over and over and over, and then you pause and wait expectantly looking at that child a lot of times they're going to pop that word right out so a great way to get early verbalizations going associated with meals and snacks uh, certainly we've talked about the vocabulary when a kid is ready to talk we can the the same words that we mentioned back when we were talking about early signs we can do the same thing with early words we can certainly talk about the names for the utensils and the names for the specific foods and drinks, but don't forget those words like more and all done. And, you know, if it's important to a parent, please and thank you. Those kinds of words, you can really work those in quite naturally at mealtime. And then for kids who are moving along, you can still use meals and snacks here to introduce short phrases. And remember, when we introduce phrases, we look at, combining words that children already say. So once a child has about a 35 to 50 word vocabulary, that's when we know they're developmentally ready to move to two word phrases. So look at what a kid, if he says milk, and if he says please, look at combining that to milk please. Some kids will um, be able to move from words to phrases quite easily, but many, many, many of our late talkers will stay in that kind of limbo where it's really hard to get a two-word phrase to get them to move to that level and I've got really specific recommendations for that that we don't really have time to talk about today we only have a couple more minutes left on this show but take a look at a post on my website called making the leap from words to phrases and I've done a couple of different podcasts about that topic over the years you know this show is eight years old I cannot believe it but go back and listen to a show, and that's what you would search, making the leap from words to phrases, because that's what I've, I've always called that topic when I've talked about it. But look at that kind of thing. Um, if you have a kid who's kind of in that limbo, let me just add this, that that has a large number of spontaneously spoken, meaning he does it on his own, single words. And again, I wait until they're between 35 and 50 words that they use all the time so they're really talking before I move to phrases but a good little step if they can't seem to get those words combined is to do a lot of holistic phrases meaning I did it I got it I want it give me that those little holistic phrases help a kid learn how to sequence and how to combine those words and it just seems to be an easier step for so many of our little friends who are late talkers so holistic phrases are a great time to work on um, again, making that big developmental jump to using phrases. So that might be something that as a therapist you're talking about with parents and you're making them a little list. And the ones that I just used are the ones that I teach parents. So you can certainly um, do that as well. Now, all of those recommendations were from a handout in the expressive section that we just talked about from my book, Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers. So if you need some ideas like that that you can share with parents, um, get yourselves a copy of that book because you can just, uh, it's written like a homework book, so just copy it and then uh, parents can have their own version of that to remember what they want to work on between appointments. It's also a great tool to use these little specific suggestions when you're writing and developing your IFSPs or your IEPs. If you need specific strategies, get yourself a copy of that book. 
because it will certainly help you. We don't have a lot of time to talk about the intelligibility piece or articulation, but here's what I do with this. I pick the foods for the snack or the meal based on the sounds we're working on. And we talked about this on last week's show when we were discussing toys. We talked about how our little lip sounds fit in so well with bubbles and how when we were talking about cars, how our little throat sounds or pharyngeal sounds, K's and G's fit with that. Do the same thing. Pick your whatever you're offering, whatever food or drink that is. Pick that based on the sound that a child needs to work on. One thing that I do with intelligibility often and combine it with meals and snacks is I work on initial vowels. And this is really helpful for children who are apraxic or who have a motor speech problem or a motor planning problem. And so think about what your words would be with initial vowels if you're an SLP. Remember, if you're a parent, a vowel, those are our sounds that are A, E, I, O, and U. And remember, all of our vowel sounds have more than one way to pronounce that vowel. <laughs> And so think about the words that we could do here. Eat is an obvious one, but all done with that ah, open, up, oh no, all of those little words can be so easily incorporated and we're working on vowel differentiation, meaning that we want that vowel to sound clear and be completely different from another vowel sound that they're trying to pronounce. And that is a real intelligibility problem, particularly for our children who are apraxic. They have a lot of difficulty making their vowels sound different. And so meals are a great time to work on that. So here's my point of this whole show. If you think about this framework, and again, this hierarchy, social, and then we move to cognitive slash receptive skills, and then we move to expressive skills, and then we move to intelligibility, you cannot go wrong because it will make every single activity that you do with the child, at least your time will be capable or, or you'll, you'll be presenting or you'll have that opportunity to work on language because you know what your goals are and you're holding on to that no matter what your specific activity is. And so today we did it with meals, but you could take these same ideas and apply it to bath time, apply it to changing the diaper, apply it to reading books or playing outside, and again, any kind of toy. So if you'll just kind of hold that framework or that hierarchy there, you'll be able to carry it over and over and over. And this, guys, this is what, it makes sense to parents. And so as a therapist, it's certainly something we should be discussing. And again, saying to a parent, now remember how we were working on eye contact when we played with bubbles and cars? Well, now we're still going to be working on eye contact even though we're in the bathtub or even though you're outside playing with him on the swing. You know, that's still our primary goal. You know, we're going to hold that goal no matter what we're working on with the child, no matter what we're doing during the day, that's what we want to be looking for. And that's a great way to explain that to parents, and they get that, I promise. All right, I hope you've enjoyed today's show, um, and I hope you'll join me next week. We're going to have some guests coming up, so um, stay tuned. We've got some great things happening. Have a great week. Bye-bye.